word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. That's from Isaiah chapter 2. Welcome back to another episode of Crossing Crown Radio. We are an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and your enjoyment. And as we say a lot, Jesus Christ is King. There's no neutrality, no exile, no surrender. And I'm Jason. This is John over here. How are you? Doing good. How are you? I am well. Yeah, it's been a good week. Good week. Busy, busy day. Lots of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Putting up drywall, building walls and stuff. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Good expansion <laughs> on the old business. Yeah. yeah. A little uh, side project, so to speak. It's a business owned by people who actually go to Cross and Crown Church and yep. some entrepreneurship. Yep. Growing business, moving a warehouse. It's really exciting. Nice. Um, maybe... Moving out of the basement into a warehouse. Yep. Moving on up. Yep. 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 God is good. Indeed. So, yeah, not, not a lot. Um, Going on other than that, just kind of the, enjoying the fall weather. It's been cool. Finally, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that. I, I like the uh, jeans and t-shirt weather for sure. <laughs> I like the hoodie weather. The hoodie is cool too. Yeah, but yeah. you're from Michigan, so you're kind of a weirdo. I've adapted to Virginia, I have to tell you, Already? man. Already? Oh, yeah. I'm cold. I'm cold. <laughs> it's 65 and I'm freezing, which, you know, in 50 degree weather in Michigan, you go out with your shorts on. Sure. It, it makes That's sense. That's how it goes. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you all for listening and joining us for another episode uh, we have some housekeeping stuff. Just a reminder, we are on iTunes and Google Music, Spotify, Amazon Music. We're everywhere you can find podcasts. And uh, we are also at lambsrain.com slash CCR. And again, we want to point you there to Lambs Rain. Follow us on Facebook. We have the radio page, of course, but we also have Lambs Rain's Facebook page. Um, I think we're on Instagram, too. Yeah. With Lambs yeah, Rain Insta- Media is on Instagram. Yeah. Good deal. And uh, yeah, make sure you check that out there. And again, if you feel led, you know, if in your prayers and your giving, if you want to um, assist us and as we grow our reach and continue to try to get these truths out there into the world, we would love to have you partner with us. How do they do that? Uh, go to lambsrain.com slash support. Uh, there you can give one time or you can give reoccurringly. We'd very much appreciate it. We're completely listener and viewer funded. Uh, so everything we do is is completely up to the funding of people who've graciously given us some some materials, some equipment, and some funding. Yeah. So the reason why we have nice mics or a mixer is just because people have been gracious. So we very much appreciate that. And um, if you'd like to continue help, continuing to help us, we'd appreciate that as well. Yeah, we don't have any commercials from beer companies. They're not knocking at our doors, yeah. giving <laughs> us millions of dollars to advertise <laughs> their products. So we definitely um, rely on, on your generosity. generosity. I can say that word. Words are hard sometimes. Words can be hard. Yeah. Well, speaking of words, let's we're going to get into a, an interesting topic today. The word theonomy. Theonomy. Scary Big word. scary word, right? <clears throat> Something in the back of my throat. That's okay. I'll make it through. Yeah, theonomy. Big scary word. Uh, apparently, there was some discussion on the nine marks side of things. Tell us about that. What well, did you see? I think the discussion started when Jonathan Lehman went on a cross-politic episode. Uh, Cross Politics Studios, they they have their podcasts and their video cast, and they discussed some things, and Theonomy obviously came up, and they had a, a fairly good discussion, and then later on, Lehman, uh, along with Mark Devers and T. David Gordon, uh, recorded a podcast, I believe it's on the Pastor's Talk uh, pod- podcast oh, yeah. through, through Nine Marks, and they discussed theonomies, uh, theonomy, and it was episode 147, and the name of the episode is On the Appeal and the Errors of Theonomy. And you can go find that. We'll have the link there for you. We yeah. definitely want you to listen to it. I think it's it's worth listening sure. to. We certainly don't have time to play back the entire episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so by all means, go and listen to it in context uh, for yourself. And we will, we're going to play a couple clips, but... We, uh, I've listened to it several times, trying to take notes, and I want. Yeah. We're trying to 
respond, of course, as if, you know, Mark Dever is a regular listener. I don't know. But um, there were some comments that were troubling yes. and, and things of that nature. So we want to address those. So we will play a couple of clips um, throughout. Uh, but you should listen to it. You should because uh, it's obviously a discussion that's still lingering. And they have some comments about that that we'll get into. Uh, but but theonomy is not going to go away because uh, I think the Lord, in my estimation, is sovereignly utilizing the current state of affairs to nudge the church in a direction that they ought to go. Now, whether yeah, or not I the agree. church listens, <laughs> that's a different issue. Sure. I think it's bringing up questions. I think it's bringing up important questions and good questions. Um, one thing that I've noticed about theonomy is that people have been saying that theonomy is dead for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And then every couple of years, they're like, oh, I thought this was dead. And it's just, it keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps building. And uh, yeah, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And you'll hear some well-to-do people that famous, uh, famous, I say, I say famous loosely, you know, <laughs> well-known pastors who... Oh, I'm not a theonomist. That died in the '80s, you know, and kind of just tongue in cheek that, sure. and and dismiss it very flippantly. Yeah, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not one, not a reconstructionist. Those guys are all dead. Yeah, you know, something happened back in the day, but you know, it's not anything now. And I think they're underestimating the fact that recon- Christian reconstruction, specifically theonomy generally, is very, very. Um, I think it's growing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a belief that's starting to get out there through various means, well, like well, this as podcast. people who are actually part of that community, we have seen the growth. I've been a theonomist for over ten years now, and I've definitely seen growth of not just theonomy but Reconstructionism specifically. And there is a difference, um, and it's just grown and grown for sure. Well, we should define theonomy. Yeah, that's important. And <laughs> but I will say this real quick, and then let you go for it on that on that regard. <clears throat> but. Theonomy is a subset of Christian Reconstruction. Not all theonomists are Reconstructionists. Right. Some are so covenanters. Theonomy is the bigger tent, yes. and then Reconstructionism is a smaller tent within theonomy. Right. Yeah. And, and usually Christian Reconstructionists will talk about um, you know, covenant theology, presuppositionalism. They're Calvinists uh, as well. Yeah. 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 So there's kind of a broad category, typically Reconstructionist, post-millennial, that's, that sort of thing. Um, but you do have theonomists who wouldn't, maybe they're not post-millennial. There's a small minority, I think. Sure. But, um, but that's kind of just a, a distinguishing mark. But how do we define theonomy? Because we're going to listen to some a couple of clips and also talk about this episode that they did, and I, we think that they got some parts of that wrong, of course. But right. w- let's start with a definition. Well, there's there's obviously going to be lots of definitions. For every theon- theonomic author, they probably have their own definition. Uh, but I found this to be one of the most helpful uh, definitions of theonomy. It's from uh, Dr. Joel McDermott. He says, The biblical teaching that Mosaic law contains perpetual moral standards for living, including some civil laws, which remain obligatory for today. And I think this definition is really helpful because it doesn't say all of the Mosaic law. It doesn't say that all of the civil laws. It merely says that today some of these ethics, some of these laws are still abiding. And it it does a good job of being very concise in that manner. Of course, the problem with definitions is that as concise and as small as you make it is, it's going to leave open lots of exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not going to get a definition of theonomy that is perfect until you write a book on theonomy, (laughs) which is always the problem with definitions, right? It's how narrow you get or how broad you get. And I have Bonson here, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Of course, this was... 900 pages. Yeah, of, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's referenced in the... Is it 900 pages? Uh, it's actually... I don't think it's 900 no, pages. No, it's like 500. Okay. Because they yeah. said it was 900 in the podcast, and I thought, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. Yeah, no, when I was that, looking at that book, I was like, that actually doesn't seem like 900 <laughs> pages. No, it's yeah. not. Um, but of course, you really know, this is a classic time. text for Theonomists, and he is very, very... He tries to be very careful in it. Yeah. <clears throat> lots of footnotes, lots of references. And I think this was his master thesis at uh, Westminster. Yeah. So he studied at Westminster, and uh, Van Til was there, of course, John Frame. So those guys kind of knew each other um, back in the 80s and so on. So, but yeah, definitionally, you know, there's a lot of material on, on Christian Reconstructionism and specifically theonomy. Um, dating even back to the Puritans. So I think Joel's definitions is solid. Um, Mosaic law continues perpetual moral standards for living, including some civil laws, which remain obligatory for today. 
So it's helpful. It's short and sweet. It's a tweet, you know? So yeah, exactly. It is what it is. It's the tweet version. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And I think you had a Rush Dooney quote that you found helpful in relation to that. Yeah, and I think this is going to become obvious why I'm quoting this as we as we discuss the podcast, as we discuss um, uh, the Nine Marks podcast. But this comes from R.J. Rush Dooney, which is somebody they didn't mention at all Not even in, in their podcast. And he is the, um, how to put this, he is the... John Calvin to Calvinism as Rush is to Reconstructionism or even Theonomy. Um, Theonomy is not new, not even close to new, not even close to new. Uh, but R.J. Rush was the, was one of the first people to come along to truly systemize it in a thorough hermeneutic and really establish the ideas as, as like a foundational hermeneutic and through a systematic theology. Um, so he's extremely influential, extremely influential. Uh, Bonson is talked about a lot in the Nine Marks podcast as if Bonson was the Rush Juni. But I mean, obviously, Bonson's very influential. He's great. He's brilliant. But he was a, a learner of Rush Juni in a lot of ways. Yeah, Bonson wasn't the only theonomist. That's why it's funny not in the podcast. Like, what? Not what even, do you mean? not even close. Yeah. Anyway, this quote is really helpful. And uh, Rush Juni says, "Few things are more commonly misunderstood than the nature and meaning of theocracy. It is commonly assumed to be a dictatorial rule by self-appointed men who claim to rule for God." In reality, theocracy in biblical law is the closest thing to a radical libertarianism that can be had. That's R.J. Rushduni. Excellent quote. And I think part of what he's getting at there is theonomy tends to be, and this is where critics of theonomy go wrong, they will simply dismiss it and say, well, you're just trying to impose a top-down authoritarianism. In fact, these guys in the podcast mentioned authoritarianism, and they quoted some some lady who had written an article about it. And I don't know the article. Maybe it was helpful, but I'm wondering why. I don't think she was actually writing about theonomy. I think she was just writing about like social politics and psychology. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting that they decide to talk about authoritarianism without without really clearly calling theonomy authoritarianism. Yeah. Uh, but they certainly brought it up as if a theonomy is authoritarianism. And I think something that we need, we need to make very clear at the, the forefront is, like we were saying, there's different brands of theonomy. Obviously, there's Christian Reconstructionists, um, there's Covenanters, there's people who are, you know, theonomic light, if you will, or uh, theonomy with a little t. <laughs> and a lot of these people will kind of pick and choose different elements of God's law to implement into their own, like, social politics, but they're not going to be building a consistent theonomic hermeneutic. And what we're talking about and what we believe in is a consistent theonomic hermeneutic. We're theonomists through and through, and that applies to our personal lives, to what we believe about the family, to what we believe about the church, and also what we believe about society. Um, and so whenever we discuss theonomy, we're not necessarily talking about some of the more popular people out there who have kind of thrown theonomy about as a term, um, who are kind of pushing the culture war <laughs> forward, if you will. Uh, we're actually talking about men like R.J. Rushdoony, like Gary North, men like Greg Bonson, Joel McDermott, um, not necessarily people who have historically called themselves little t theonomists or pseudo theonomists or theonomic lights. And all of a sudden it's become a little bit more in vogue and they're theonomists again. Yeah. That's <laughs> the big thing is you have people that have, have dismissed it. You know, I'm, I'm a Westminster, I'm a Westminster theonomist, lowercase t. Yeah. And whatever that means. They or, don't want to or, call themselves reconstructionists. Half the time they don't want to call themselves theonomists, but now in 2019, 2020, it's kind of becoming a little bit more popular. Correct. Yeah. And that's the big concern is what's the consistent hermeneutic? What is the okay? consistent hermeneutic? So I'm just going to say this, and we're going to come back to it. When it comes to the Westminster issue, I'll address that as we go, because they talk about that. I think it's widely misunderstood. Um, the the constant hermeneutic that I appreciate is more of a word picture. Bo, Bo a friend of ours, Bo Jedar Marinoff, um, did a podcast on that, The Shadows and the Light of the Law of God, and I think it was very helpful because for him it's an effort of saying, there are shadowy things, and then there's light. The shadowy things, of course, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, um, you have uh, ceremonial pictures. These were gospel pictures yeah. that Israel was entrusted with that were fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, they're very typological, exactly. Right. Yeah. So at the bat, a, you know, base level definition, uh, what, what, what I would add to Joel's quote, if I could just maybe 
a, a small <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> is but well, he and he kind of says it, I guess, perpetual moral standards for living. And that's an individual responsibility uh, responsibility. So as individuals, we're responsible to God, his law. We need to obey him. And but but so are nations as a collective. So you have the individual, the collective. So there, there's kind of um, a balance there. The king is just as responsible to obey the law as an individual as is, you know, the peasant yeah. out in the field. So we want not necessarily a top-down approach, though I would love, you know, President Trump to truly repent. But we're advocating Christian self-governance, right? Rush Dooney's libertarianism. Absolutely. Rush Dooney talked a lot about how he advocated um, uh, he advocated redemption and regeneration as opposed to revolution. Correct. And that, that distinction is incredibly important. So we're not saying we just want to put mosaic law on everybody. Uh, that's a very—I think it's an undercutting—something dismissive to say. Critics usually will say that. There's more to it. There's more to it than just that. So one of the things, let's kind of get into the interview. Yeah, let's get into it. All right, we have some um, points, and you can timestamp it later if you want. It's fine. We'll we'll play a clip clip here in a second. But essentially, their whole thing was, let's talk about the appeal. Why is theonomy appealing? And they talk about that toward the end, but also, what are the errors? All right, T. uh, T. David Gordon, he wrote an article after Westminster had responded to Bonson, and he was upset. He didn't think their response was good. We agree. We, we agree. We agree with you. It on was that. actually pretty horrible. David, yeah, I think he's a professor at Grove City um, College in Pennsylvania. Grove City, Pennsylvania. I think that's Western Pennsylvania. Anyway, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Kenneth Gentry wrote a response to him back in the day. So there, there's kind of this, you know, in not infighting, but this intramural dialogue with regard to those guys and theonomy specifically. But th- at the very beginning, they just one of them said, "Oh, someone back in the '80s talked about Bonson, et cetera, et cetera." Always a straw man, it seems like. Yeah. Oh, those guys believed that way back then. Somebody may have talked about it. Mm. And dismissing, you know, the, the heritage of Puritan thought in, in theology and theonomy. And so I want to start with this clip from, uh, I think this is David Gordon speaking. I got their voices a little mixed up, so I'm yeah, not yeah. entirely sure all the time. Lehman was the main host. Dever is pretty recognizable. Yeah. And, and then... Uh, the guy who's going to start here is T. David Gordon. So let's listen to that clip. Because it wasn't just divine law that they were proposing. They were proposing that the Mosaic law given to the peculiar Israelite theocracy should be the law of other nations, right? Mm-hmm. So they weren't just saying that humans should follow the divine order established in creation and reveal They were saying that civil governments should model themselves after the Israelitocracy and that governed hers. So we don't care about the name. Theonomy could be a perfectly good abstract term that means our recognition of the divine order in his creation and our submission to it, but that's not what theonomists mean. They mean that the Mosaic law, even the civil laws of Moses, right, are to endure forever. And so it rejects the, the distinction made in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession. And Mark, I'm not sure if it's chapter 19 in the London Baptist or not, because you know, the chapters are not always in sync with each other. But in the chapter on the law of God, at least uh, in Westminster, one and two deal with the moral law. And then uh, sections three and four deal with the ceremonial and the civil law and arguing they both have, uh, have, have been abrogated together with the state of those people. And theonomy disagrees with that. And it lumps the civil law in with the moral law. Bonson often writes moral hyphen civil law. So instead of seeing them as separate categories as the Reformed traditions have, he sees the civil law as a part of the moral law. So that, that's an interesting point that he makes uh, with regard to the Westminster Confession, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that in a second and appeal to that. But his definition, he, they want to acknowledge theonomy, oh, it just means God's law, right? They all snomals, great, God's law. And then they, they want to say that Mosaic civil law endures forever, and yeah, that's true. Sure. We think that yeah. we know we would agree the Sinai covenant's over. That covenant is over. The new, the new covenant in Christ's blood is what's established. But again, the question is continuity and discontinuity between the law of God and the old, old covenant and into the new. Yeah, and in the way all of God law, God's law endures, but it might endure in a different way, where it continues in Christ, fulfilled in Christ. It's still there 
but it's not it's not uh, necessarily going to have the same jurisdiction or penology connected to it. Right. So he brought up the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19 and section 4, and I'm going to read that. It says, "...to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws," notice the laws, plural, "...which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may required." So he makes this comment there about the Reformed tradition sees these three sections of the law as separate, right? So there's moral law, there's judicial law, and there's civil law. Now, Mr. Gordon, I have to I have to tell you, I have this interesting little booklet here called Theonomy and the Westminster Confession, and I'm I'm looking through this, and I've looked through it years ago, and I dug it out this week as well as we were prepping for this, right? And um, that's simply not true that the Reformed tradition has always held those three things as that's separate. Right. I I have about maybe three to five Puritan paperbacks up there from Gillespie or Rutherford who would uh, disagree as well. And you have examples throughout all of the Reformed history of people who have held some form of theonomy. And let's just take like your understanding of theonomy. It has some sort of abiding validity of the Mosaic law, not sort of like a vague theonomy, but something that actually is the abiding validity of the Mosaic law. Well, I think there's a lot of examples throughout mm-hmm. throughout the ref, the Reformation and the Reformed history who um, would abide by that. You, I'm sure we can talk about some of those examples, and I, I, th- I think you have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah. James Ferguson being an example, you, David Dixon being another example. Um, I'm just thumbing through with this booklet here because it's so well laid out. It's just helpful to know guys like Gillespie, Rutherford, these men who actually helped write this. Right. The they Westminster actually helped Confession. write the Westminster Confession. They, ha- right. they actually helped write it. And for them, their main issue has everything to do with how we how we view God's law. And they never really spoke like that all the time. Okay. Sometimes you had a, a situation where and this is kind of where my position is, judicial laws are actually moral laws. All right. So Calvin had something funny to say about that. He saw moral as being just the the general principle there, yeah. and then judicial being tied to penology. And so there's a discussion in his um, Institutes, chapter twenty, book was it book twenty, um, where he discusses and delineates between those things. So and that's actually helpful because yeah. a lot of times the way it's discussed, it's as if the civil law wasn't moral in any way. Correct. Which doesn't make any sense, <laughs> because if it is a sin to break the civil law of God, even in Old Testament theonomic Israel, then that's moral. Like, it has to be. So all of God's law, when it's applicable, is also moral. Yes. It has to be. And, or else it's not actually a reflection of the character of God. And part of what, something that Bo had, had pointed out, and I thought it was very well, on the one side you have theonomists who want to defend kind of what I was doing for a second. They want to defend, hey, the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith believed in the Mosaic Law. Yeah, well, being, a lot of them did. Yes, being applicable to uh, all nations, right. all right? And and then, so that's that's the one side, and then you have the other side, like the Nine Marks camp, who wants to say, well, it says judicial right there. Mm. These judicial laws... We don't. They're they're gone. They've they've expired. I think a lot of these churchmen are interpreting the Westminster Confession the same way liberals interpret the United States Constitution. <laughs> they're not actually going to the writers of the confession. They're going to modernist interpretations of the confessions. So the, the distinction I think that is correct here. Okay, now I'm willing to be proven wrong. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But the distinction is. Whenever you talk about God's law, we are talking about a collection that includes certain aspects of life, okay? So you have moral law, and moral is kind of just the way that it's all summed up, even in, in section 3 of chapter 19 there, the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, But here there's sundry judicial laws. Now, sundry today typically means various, right? Various, various. right. But the Old English, it simply meant separate, like the word asunder, where we get, you know, not to put a, um, this marriage covenant asunder, to separate, to break it. So the argument really is, I think both sides aren't getting it correct, in that 
you have, there are separate judicial laws that were only tied to Israel. So think Jubilee, right? The Jubilee principle. Think of um, um, the priest's daughter who fornicates and is put to, put to death. Right. <laughs> so These aspects that are highly ceremonial. They're tied to, and Gary North might say, if you read his uh, appendix of Leviticus, his economic commentary, you have seed laws or laws tied to the land specifically. Right, and, and these laws, a lot of them obviously had civil penalties connected to it, but the laws themselves also had a very ceremonial aspect to them. Correct. And and that's, that's the thing, is like we have this three-part distinction of the law that is the very historical confessional standard, and that's good. It's very helpful a lot of the times. But whenever you actually go through the law of God and study it, you see that there's a lot of civil laws that had very clear ceremonial aspects to them. And it's not that easy to categorize everything into three separate categories. And if you think it is, I challenge anybody to do that <laughs> and to show me three separate categories <clears throat> that are distinct and doesn't have any overlap. If you do that, you get my next paycheck. It's not going to happen, though. And um, Johannes Piscator, Disputations on the Judicial Laws of Moses. He's um, very early. Yeah. In fact, um, Gillespie quotes incites Piscator. He's yeah. very influential. We're for talking the about 1600s, I believe. Yeah. Like yes. very early. Yeah. And so Dr. McDermott edited this book, put it out. Uh, he has an even a helpful introduction to it as well. But the general idea it was from Piscator and others was look, there are obviously things in the law of God that were tied specifically to Israel, those, those land things. Um, you had laws of the feasts. The feasts and the festivals, this is getting into Colossians yeah, too. exactly right. Those things were fulfilled in Christ. So the law of God is... Okay, think of it this way. The law of God is what happens if God becomes a man. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is the law. He's law incarnate. He is a reflection of the purity and holiness of God. So that that aspect of he fulfills the um, the food and Sabbath and 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 uh, the festivals and things like that. People want to go back to those today because mm-hmm. they think it's more spiritual to hold a Passover Seder meal. And that's just going back to shadowy parts of the law, the almost like a pre-gospel gospel. And so we know that those things are gone in Christ. Um, those things have been abrogated. Generally, the principle is if it's not rescinded in the New Testament, then it's still obligatory. Yeah, either explicitly or by by category. And that's yeah. a tough hermeneutic because not everything, not every ceremonial law is repealed. <laughs> there are things <laughs> that are kind of wait what? But the, so I think again, we're trying to get to a hermeneutic, and that hermeneutic needs to be rooted in a very biblical view of what are the shadows, what was it that was specific to Israel, because this is where nine marks gets it wrong. They think, oh, only the moral law applies, the judicial doesn't. We're saying, well, actually, there's judicial, quote-unquote, judicial things that are moral and attached to it, and there are penalties that go with it, Ten Commandments, case laws, etc. And then there's these ceremonial, pre-gospel, shadowy things that are consumed in Christ or brought to fulfillment in Christ. And some of those had civil penalties, and some of them didn't. Right. Yeah. And and their argument in the Westminster Confession was actually those things that belong strictly to them are there are general equity principles we can pull from it. Yeah. So they're not these authors are not ignoring judicial. They're just talking about it differently than what it's ironic that they say, well, the reformed tradition. You don't even have the reformed tradition at that point because you're not quoting these guys and you know bringing bringing up what what it is they're thinking. Yeah, it's interesting they don't mention John Knox, for example. Yeah, um, they don't want to bring up that. Any Puritans, you know, they they t- they say that Bonson's a, a main source. Didn't even talk about Rush Juni, Gary North, right? Um, those kind of guys. So yeah, I think that when you also one of the things they point out. And this was around the six minute, 40 second mark when they were talking about the Westminster Confession, uh, this idea of it expiring. And the question I always have is, look, were pagan nations under judgment for not abiding by Mosaic law? That seems to really be the linchpin of this, because in their defining of theonomy and their dismissal of theonomy, it's explicitly saying that theonomy is exclusively for the historical theonomic state of Israel. That's what they say. And if it's not exclusively, I think that opens the door to all sorts of things. Well, you certainly had Gentiles who became 
uh, converts, right? right? You have that, uh, right? Uh, and at that and point, they'd become part of the Mosaic Covenant. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there'd be that understanding. But you also have Amos, for example, chapters 1 and 2, judging Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and all these nations around them. Was not Egypt judged by the law of God when they enslaved Israel? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what about the flood? Was God just? Was that not an example of his law right. and his justice? This is pre-Moses, by the way. What about um, the examples of, uh, think about Nebuchadnezzar, who was judged for his haughtiness and his right. arrogance. So it was clear that not, it wasn't just Israel that was expected to obey God. Israel was simply the privileged people who was called, Isaiah 51 says, to be a light of the nations. Yeah. And God's justice would be a light to the nations. So they were to show people exactly what it is God is like. And I, I don't think you can, ha- you can um, come up with the argument that God's law was only for them. And that's I, I don't it. think so. I think you really get into some sticky, inter, you know, sticky ideas about what Israel was if you think that God's law is exclusively for Israel. So like, what is the basis for God's judgment on other nations? First of all, one could say oh, oh, the moral law was the basis. But then I would ask, what is the benefit of a pagan joining together with Israel? Mm-hmm. Could they not just live a good life? And live morally, but not be a, a member of the Mosaic Covenant and not be an actual Israelite. But instead, God's law teaches that they should be repentant, obey God's law, become circumcised, go through all the ceremonies, um, and that would mean faithfulness to them. Actually, having that faith, looking to Christ in the future, obviously, that would be counted to them as righteousness, that looking to Christ. And that is much more than just the moral understanding Mm -hmm. of God's law. At that point in time, to be right with God is to be a member of Israel. And that counted for foreigners coming in. That counted for everyone. Isaiah 51, 4, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Literally, my position is Jesus didn't come up with this novelty with the Great Commission. I I think you would agree with this too, that the, the Great Commission was also something that Israel was tasked with. Jesus becomes the true Israelite, and his people then are the true Israel, the the Israel of God, Galatians 6 says. So it wasn't like Jesus came up with this new idea, but it it had become so centralized, so abused, and so paganized that they needed a proper atonement. All the sacrifices pointed to that. And obviously there are differences, where in the Old Covenant it was tied to the land, and being a light meant being brought into the land and bringing into that covenant. Now... Now the chosen land is the world or the cosmos, as, as, as Paul says. And that means that to be brought into the covenant isn't going to be necessarily tied to the land, but it's tied to all of creation and to Christ himself. So the other thing Dever does, and so they talk about this argument from necessity. We theonomists love the light of the law of God. We desire light to shine everywhere. And I think they mentioned that. But then this comment's made, well, it doesn't mean it should be, <laughs> just because there's a necessity, just because our current state is um, out of bounds in many ways, doesn't mean, oh, well, we have to force biblical exegesis to make it sound like the state has to obey God, this idea. And I just, I, I didn't really care for that comment, because I, I don't think he's right in that regard. But then Dever kind of follows that up a, a couple minutes later, He says, the New Testament doesn't seem to work for an imprint of Israelite theonomy. He says, there's nothing in the New Testament. Mm. So it's almost like this forced division between whatever happened in the old, it's gone, it's done, a very dispensational type of hermeneutic. And then then in the New, New Testament, there's, you know... The apostles are preaching, which, by the way, side comment, I preached this on Easter, Psalm 2 this powerful psalm about the Messiah, right? The, the, the magistrates are to kiss the sun lest they perish. The apostle Peter quotes that several times, in fact, in, in the New Testament, as being fulfilled. So much of their, the driving force, just read Acts 2, much of the driving uh, force of the uh, apostles' ministry was rooted in these Old Testament ideas. Absolutely, and 
like you said, it does seem to be like almost dispensational hermeneutic, or if you will, maybe even like a Marcionism hermeneutic, mm-hmm. like this, this old Gnosticism that dismisses the Old Testament. And I don't think that that's what they would affirm. So I don't want to say that they're affirming Marcionism or or dispensationalism, um, especially Gordon, who I believe is a Presbyterian. He's Presbyterian, right? Yeah. Uh, however, I think oftentimes what you're going to find in most critics. Uh, criticisms of theonomy, not all, but most, is that their arguments prove too much. Hmm. While arguing against theonomy, they end up essentially uh, defending an almost antinomian view. Uh, They prove way too much. And inevitably it becomes a very nebulous natural law idea as well. Yeah. So where do we where do we where do we pull these principles? And we've often found that natural law to one person is very different than natural law to another person. It becomes autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he brings up this Calvin quote from uh, book, uh, yeah. book four, chapter 20. I, I messed that up earlier, but, and this is, this is what it says here. And this is a translation from the Ford battles. Uh, yeah. 420 and then section 14. For there are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed, which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the common law of nations. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. They take Calvin to be criticizing someone like Martin Bucer, right, and saying, "How? Why would we ever think to apply Mosaic law? You know, in these situations, why? It's so foolish. It seems obvious. That's what his quote is, right? Well." <laughs> What, what else was going on during There's this time? <laughs> problems. Many of you may know this. Some of you may not. But Calvin had a major problem with the Anabaptists. Yeah. He used the term seditious many times in, in his institutes and in letters and commentaries. And a lot of the times he uses that term seditious in reference to the Radical Reformation or the Anabaptists. And they were very much... Um, doing civil disobedience and revolutionary activity. Yeah, so a, a lot of them, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them, especially in uh, Munster, was a big event where it ended up being a massacre, um, and it was a very revolutionary sort of theonomy. And I guess you could call that theonomy in the loosest of terms, but in the same way you could call, I don't know, Islam theonomy or cult theonomy. It's very, very, very loose. And it's I think we would agree, and a lot of historians would agree, that it's most likely that Calvin wasn't talking about Bucer or a a consistent theonomic hermeneutic, but talking about the Radical Reformation and the slaughter going on in some, in some German city-states. Yeah, the Anabaptists especially. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, you also, we were talking about this earlier, Joel, a friend of ours, McDermott. That's we've right. mentioned him already, but uh, he has an article, um, because Calvin has commentaries on Deuteronomy, which he very much utilizes <laughs> as something that ought to be helpful for nations. Yeah, he, he Calvin's commentaries on Deuteronomy, which he wrote much later in his life, uh, by the way, as an aside, um, are extremely theonomic. He doesn't come out and explicitly teach a theonomic hermeneutic, but the way that he teaches on Deuteronomy is very similar to how a theonomist would teach it, uh, almost to the point where he his presuppositions, if you will, are theonomic. And so we're not we're not saying that Calvin is like on our team, if you will, but we are saying that he is, I would say, at, at most inconsistent on, on this issue. And he was most likely referencing the Anabaptists. And then later, if you go read his commentaries on Deuteronomy, he sounds like somebody who was closer to, say, maybe Episcator or Abuser. Uh, very much teaching a a firm theonomic ethic at times, at least. Yeah, and so in in this interview, they're they're trying to deal with. Even Gordon said this: you have to deal with the Israelite theocracy, and it's just kind of it's there. So much of the Bible is rooted in the story of Israel, the Old Testament, thirty nine books, verses twenty seven in the New, and it very much outweighs just in terms of content yeah. the, the New Testament. So you can't ignore it. Well, I guess you can. You can be a Schofield and ignore it, but you, you really shouldn't. You you shouldn't just dismiss. Israel's vocation, Israel's calling to be a light to the nations, and and the parameters surrounding those things. And it is interesting that they kind of boil this whole thing down into about three categories. And and Gordon had mentioned this in the interview. He said there are really three options. One, Israel is a model for the state. He says that's theonomy. Two, Israel is a model for the church. 
and that that some people would would say that. And then uh, three, Israel is a model for the consummated kingdom in the life to come, which is Gerhardus Voss and Meredith Klein's position, and they mention that in the in the uh, interview. I'm, I actually think it's all three. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, I'm not sure where you are, Pastor, yeah. but I think all three. Yes. And I would even say a fourth point and, or a fifth point where Israel is a model for our personal lives and our, our, our personal holiness. And it's a model for how we raise our families as well. And uh, it's almost like the Bible is good for all things uh, in <laughs> teaching and holiness and living. Um, it's almost like that that's true. And um, yeah, I mean, I think those three options are fine. Van Til, you know, the Bible um, is authoritative on everything of which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. That's right, <laughs> yeah. Whoa, Mr. Cornelius Van Til, nice work. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's all of those three. I mean, you go to Peter, and he talks about the Church being a nation, and the Church is a nation that is infiltrating all the nations. Yeah. And what are we infiltrating with? The law and gospel of God. That's right. And the law drives us to the gospel. This is Bolton. They reference Bolton's book, actually, in the interview. But and then the gospel drives us back to the law to see what it is our duty is thou know now people who are justified. Great quote from that book. So I, I take it as all three. I don't feel like you have to pick one or the other, and and the reason is because there are transcendent principles. Yeah, exactly, and and that's so important to understand. And I don't think Dever and Lehman and Gordon did this necessarily in this podcast, but a lot of people when they speak of theonomy, they do so very disparagingly. And they do so as if God was unjust. And the way they speak about theonomy with this sort of shock or disgust, um, it's very dangerous because God's law, even if you don't think it's applicable right now, even if you don't like theonomy or even if you reject theonomy, God's law was, is good, period. Amen. Amen. And I think we have to start with that. They get into the discussion about Matthew 5.17, right? Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. What's the word pleruo mean there? What is what is the uh, fulfillment? And, and Gordon says, well, look, it seems like Paul certainly relaxed some of the law. Man, he's in judgment. Uh, Matthew 5.19 says not to relax it. Right. And of course, there are ceremonies and shadows that he does relax, relax and it is reductionistic. So there, the... Just a flippant comment there. I realize it was a 38-minute podcast, but here sure, we they, are. Sure, they can't say everything, right? But. Yeah. But of course, you know, Bonson does talk about that. What, is, what does it mean? Does it mean confirm? Spurgeon himself, um, it's interesting. He said, the law of God, he established and confirmed. Our king has not come to abrogate the law, but to confirm and reassert it, almost like a ratification right. Well, speaking process. of Paul, and I think this is just a, an admonition to be careful, especially with Paul. And I think I'm I'm okay with saying this because Peter found Paul difficult to understand. So I think I'm okay with finding Paul difficult to understand. Um, yeah. In Romans 7, for example, Paul speaks of the law of God in at least three separate ways in one chapter. So please don't be so reductionistic to <laughs> flippantly dismiss theonomy because Paul said one thing in one verse. Yes, that is God's word, and we believe it and we affirm it, but you really need to take the whole counsel of God and dig a little bit deeper, because there are many verses in which Paul, say, like, delights in the law of God. That's Romans 7.22. <laughs> is that one verse, like, the only proof text necessary to prove, like, a Bonson-esque theonomy? No, that's not what we're saying, but it certainly needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other thing, too, is... Gordon points this out. You know, Christ's death was the ratification of the new covenant. That was the moment of the ratification. It wasn't his birth or his ministry. So clearly, Jesus was saying that during his ministry. I haven't come to relax any of this. Yeah. And and I think there's a good theonomic answer to that. Sure. We've kind of already addressed it. But but everything was moving towards the cross, and he he did uphold the law and the prophets. He didn't come to to loosen them or come with a different motif it's the no obedience of Christ yeah I yeah. mean if you've read Moses you've read of me you know that that idea and I, and I think that that's there definitely but let's switch gears another to another issue here because <laughs> there's, there's a lot there's right? a lot to cover the issue of continental covenant um covenantal continuity almost said it backwards I was like I'm not sure with co continental continental yeah, okay, yeah. yeah so what's the you know Baptist Presbyterians have a different view do we call do we call the Noahic covenant a part of the you know Adamic covenant of works is the Sinai part of that and there's just discussion on on that and of course John Murray they mentioned him he kind of laid some some groundwork with regard to the 
all covenants are um, sovereign administrations of grace and promise. So are all the covenants just the big covenant of grace? Do we make a distinguishing? Uh, <laughs> well, there has been dis- disagreements on well, that. Yeah, that's that's the thing I wanted to say is that one thing that it's important to note is that I know many theonomists and major theonomists who would disagree with Murray on the nature of the covenants and affirm the classical reformed view that uh, there's one covenant of grace and the others were covenants of works or a mix. And so this is not necessarily something that's unique to theonomy not or something that has a sort of a, uh, um, it's, it's not something that's agreed upon by everyone. I know some theonomists who do think that it's all one big kind of grace covenant. Um, but I know many others who don't. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to answer that fully tonight. <laughs> we yeah, we're, to get we're not going to. That's gonna, a big. That's a big issue. Going to yeah. play another cl- clip as they discuss the appeal of theonomy. Let's play that. David, why do you think that uh, Bonson's stuff, with Bonson himself personally gone out of the scene for a while now, why do you think his stuff that was uh, biggish when you and I were at Gordon Conwell in the '80s? Why is that? coming back right now or or is it are we just imagining it yeah i don't know it's very interesting i was thinking the other day uh as soon as jonathan had contacted me i was surprised to hear that in baptist circles you're sort of seeing this resurgence of theonomy because i thought it had finally died in our circles you know now I, I was thinking you know that we had a nice funeral for it and buried it uh so for instance when we examine candidates at our presbytery i'm not even sure we ask them about that anymore i don't recall the last time we even asked a candidate at Ascension Presbytery about his views on theonomy. Mm -hmm. So I thought it largely had died in our circles. So I suspect uh, before we started recording where our conversation was going is, is it possible that the kind of uh, cultural upheaval that we're experiencing at a moment like this is leading people to grasp around uh, for some solid foundation by which they can address matters of state and matters of public policy and so theonomy offers them that. An Australian political scientist named Karen Stenner in a paper on authoritarianism said, authoritarianism isn't synonymous with any one ideological framework. Rather, she says what it is is a functional disposition, a functional disposition concerned with maximizing oneness and sameness, uh, especially in conditions where the things that make us one and the same, common authority, shared values, appear to be under threat. Yeah. So my sense is that authoritarian leaders and philosophies are going to become increasingly attractive in seasons of political and cultural opposition and turmoil. When our freedoms and values and lives and so forth, seeing them under threat, yeah, we're going to cast about looking for the quote-unquote strong man. Yeah, I think I think he's right to some degree. People may be, in fact, searching for something. Well, Sure. Yeah. Is that wrong? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, if if there's a gap, there's a void, there's something missing, why isn't the church able to speak to these issues of justice? It almost seems like a glorification of not caring, Hmm. like a glorification of ambiguity and, uh, dare I say, apathy. Yeah. You, you may dare say that. Yeah. It, it is apathy. <laughs> it is absolute apathy. And I think it's an apathy found in that kind of moral ambiguity. If we can make these moral issues ambiguous, we no longer have a duty. If we no longer have a duty, we can sit back and sip on our Starbucks while we read John Calvin over and over again. And that's it. And that's it. He mentions theonomy that didn't provide certainty to Scott Hahn. He was a Presbyterian minister, and actually not far from here, as far as I, if I remember correctly, his history. I've, I've read one of his books, The Fourth Cup. <clears throat> has some interesting concepts in there. But Scott Hahn was a theonomist, and, and Gordon makes this comment. I think it was Gordon speaking, so I don't want to... Someone on the uh, podcast... <laughs> Somebody on the podcast. ...basically yeah. said that sola scriptura wasn't enough, so he went to the far right to theonomy. Right, And then, well, that didn't give him certainty, so he went to the far left, to Roman Catholicism, as if, you know, theonomists don't affirm sola scriptura. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> I think my note on this, let me check, let me check. I said, this is a joke. Yes, you did say Look, that. Look, <laughs> I went to college with somebody who grew up as a... Um, as a uh, Baptist, and then he became a Presbyterian, then became a Lutheran, and then became a Catholic. And I'm not going to blame, I don't even know, like, Reformed theology on that. It's like, just because you know a guy who converted Catholicism doesn't mean that theonomy is to blame for that. Yeah, that's... 
and and again, it's, we would, it's just a cheap shot. It is a cheap shot. It's and, a cheap shot. And and Mr. Gordon, uh, we not only hold to sola scriptura, we believe in tota scriptura. So yeah. uh, we're not relying so heavily on a on a vague natural law theory. Yeah, I think we would actually affirm sola scriptura a little bit more diligently than that. I would agree. They talk about certainty and you know views are tentative and provisional. What about psychological certainty? And then they bring up 18th century um, person James Henry Thornwell. Are you triggered yet, okay. Mr. Thornwell, yeah. and the issue of moral certainty, which is ironic illustration. Why is it ironic with Thornwell? Well, I, I think to kind of frame this discussion, they're making the argument that there is an appeal to theonomy right now because theonomy offers a sort of certainty, a sort of um, moral certainty or theological like, like a certainty, grounding. a grounding, and and people are desiring that, and theonomy is offering that. Now, what's interesting is that earlier in the podcast, I'm not sure if we spoke about this, there is a little bit of a slight against theonomy because uh, we're not able to bring together, say, a large denomination, yeah. um, which is a lot more difficult to do when you're not a you know Southern Baptist who believes in the local autonomy of the church. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it is, it, that's the argument being framed. It's like, because theonomy answers these questions, it has that appeal, which I would say, okay, sure. That I think that's a fine appeal. Uh, theonomists are providing questions to people, I'm sorry, providing answers uh, to people who have legitimate questions having to do with ethics and morality. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But what I do find interesting is that they're quoting favorably um, or referencing favorably uh, Thornwell, who was a major slavery apologist, major slavery apologist. So it's difficult for um, me to take seriously moral certainty in the same <sighs> sentence as Thornwell. Well, it gets worse than that. It does. It gets worse than that. And I think we should also probably listen to that clip as well. And, and then even even more strongly, you know, abolition and, and anti-abolition in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you may recall uh, that the Reverend McFeeders out in St. Louis, you know, he was in a border state in the, in the uh, 1860s when Lincoln was president. And uh, he, was, he was jailed for sedition. And the reason he was jailed for sedition, he never indicated whether he was pro or against abolition or slavery. He never talked about the, the, uh, the friction confronting the nation at that time. But someone presented a child to him for infant baptism. Now you can say, all right, you guys created your own problem. So, all right, we did. And, uh, but the book of church order said, and the minister shall baptize the child in the name given him by his parents in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And someone had presented a child whose name was something like Robert E. Lee Smith or something like that. And so McFeeters baptized him in the name that he was given at the hospital by his parents. And he was jailed for sedition for doing so. And he appealed his case to President Lincoln. They put him on a train and sent him to Washington, D.C. Lincoln offered him a pardon, and McFeeters wouldn't take it because he said that implies guilt, and I did nothing seditious, right? But that's how hot things were in those days. Well, Once the church allows itself to re re render these kinds of opinions, uh, the sky's the limits for how far people would go. Which, John, John that brings us to your constant concern these days that the church not be co-opted. No, that's right. That's right. That's right. The church, the church is not a little twelve-foot sailboat that gets blown around all over the place. She's the Queen Mary for crying out loud. So interesting story. So okay, I am a little triggered now because <laughs> I think that this criticism of theonomy has been more level-headed than some, and I don't hate Devers or Lehman or these guys, but. I have a huge problem with, first of all, favorably, favorably quoting a major slavery apologist and then talking about, with admiration, a man who is unwilling to take a stand on slavery. On top of that, they have the audacity to talk about authoritarianism as if authoritarianism is something that theonomy naturally brings about. Mm -hmm while refusing to actually take a moral stand against chattel slavery, not just theonomic slavery or Greek slavery or some kind of like um, nice slavery, but they're refusing to take a stand on Southern human chattel slavery. 
And I'm sure these men have said things about slavery in the past. But now, in this podcast on theonomy, it is very revealing that they are talking about with admiration a pastor who refused to take a stand on something like this, Hmm. which is interesting. And I know, I know these guys have said things about slavery in the past. And I know these guys have had, had, I would say, probably fairly good statements about Southern slavery and and, um, the culpability of the church. But it's extremely revealing to me that one of the one of the concepts being hit in this criticism is the moral certainty of the sinfulness of slavery. Hmm. While aiming at theonomy, they're also hitting that. And I think it's I think it's inevitable. I think when you hit so hard on theonomy, you lose other things. And you lose moral certainty. You lose the moral high ground. Because slavery, at the very least, the Southern slavery, is antithetical to God's word on so many levels. And this is not a, 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 a idea unique to theonomists in 2020, but this was actually an idea held by the, the Presbyterian Covenanters, especially the Irish Covenanters, but also most of the Scottish Covenanters, where they bravely called for the excommunication of anybody who held slaves. And they did that not because of some sort of cultural influence, not because of of uh, some sort of heretical abolitionism of the Quakers or anything. Hmm. They did this because of God's law, because of their understanding of the Westminster Confession of Faith, because of their understanding of God's law and the God's holy word. These men were some of the most confessional and conservative Presbyterians ever and they called for the excommunication of any slaveholder. That is bold, and that is ethics. And I think that's that's the problem with all of this, is that we're talking about God's law in terms of ethics in general. That's how we talk about it. But when they talk about theonomy, they try to narrow it down to civil law. But then yeah, when they, they try to when they try to be pastoral, they speak with moral certainty on things that are personal. But what's the difference? Why is it that we're going to be morally subjective whenever there's 10 people together in a council, but not morally subjective when there's one person? How many people must gather together before we become moral subjectivists? When we become a civil government as opposed to an individual or a church? And I think that is the the bedrock problem with this. Just like Van Til said and everybody else, if there's not theonomy, there's autonomy. And frankly, Amen. if you're able to speak with admiration of a pastor that wouldn't take a stand on Southern slavery, that's autonomy. Now you're in the ranks of the Paleo Confederates. Good job. Not a step up. Not, Not even close. Up. You know, with that too, there's this also almost like a, uh, I don't know, like maybe like a backwards Gnosticism or something. But at one point they talk about how fear desires certainty. So there's a lot of fear right now. So we're trying to grasp for certainty. Yeah. And well, maybe the Bible doesn't provide solutions that we're looking for. I think it was Lehman that said that. Pretty pretty sure. 99% sure. There, there was also talk of like, as you mature, you start asking different questions yeah. as opposed to, yeah. So it was a very weird, it was odd listening to that. Well, maybe the Bible doesn't provide the solutions that we're looking for. It's a very kind of Lutheran-esque I, pietism. Yeah, very pietistic. I, I become more holy as I become less concerned with, I don't know, the people around me. It's amazing that they have no certainty for these issues, but they are certain theonomy is wrong. They're certain theonomy is wrong. <laughs> Ironically. And Dever, you know, Dever says, look, you know, basic principles, sure, bring the principles that are relevant. What principles? Where are you pulling from? The law of God? Where are you, where are you pulling from? I'd like, I'd like to know. And he says, well, think, think as best as we can with the light we have. And, you know, Lehman, Liam, um, yeah, Lehman makes this comment about, well, the Noahic covenant. Does the state have a covenantal obligation? Well, maybe Noah. <laughs> okay, yeah. why Noah? So, the, I mean, that's we, we're running out of time, but for the most part, Dever made this... I think they're making huge category mistakes, for one. But there's this other statement that was made. The purpose of theocratic Sinai Israel was to prepare a nation for the Messiah. That was it. That's all Dever thinks. So unique purpose has been accomplished... Therefore, he says, we're not confused about the purpose of the law, as it simply prepares the way. Very reductionistic. That's not confessional version. either. That's that's not how 
the entire Old Testament. Yeah, is he, is he London or, Baptist? I don't know. If, I don't know. Probably, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So Sinai covenants retired, yada, yada. So there's all these like comments at the end that just, wow, you know, questions get redefined as we mature and almost kind of like a quasi-sociology that is an autonomous psychology. <laughs> well, it almost reminded me of like a, um, uh, like a Buddhist perspective hmm. where as you grow enlightened, you become less concerned of those outside of yourself and to find the... The greatest enlightenment is to become less and less concerned with your environment or even yourself. So the highest state of enlightenment would be to basically sit there and meditate until you die. Get rid of your all your thoughts and, and all your feelings. And I think that is that is a when you Christianize it, it becomes a form of of Gnosticism, wherein uh, your maturity is judged by how little you care about society. Mm-hmm. And that puts it very frankly and very almost harshly. But I think that's exactly what they're saying, is that you are more mature if you care less about society. And I think what we need to really make clear, and I was talking about this earlier, is that everything is ethical. Things don't become non-ethical or things don't become neutral whenever it is civil as opposed to personal. You you need to be a good pastor of God's word. You need to be a good teacher of God's word. And that means teaching all of it. And God says a lot of things about your own personal life and how you can walk holy and walk in Christ. And it says a lot about your family and it says a lot about the church, but it also says a lot about society. All of it is ethical. And they, they are right in the sense where we do need to speak humbly about the things that are not clear. But God's word is clear about a lot of things. It's really clear about slavery. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be understood. And it's clear about abortion. And frankly, I think if we apply the same hermeneutic that they are applying to slavery right now, apparently, mm-hmm. if, and then you could just make just as well make an argument for abortion. Mm-hmm. And I see this moral degradation in the Reformed community where they're waffling on sexuality, they're waffling on social issues, they're waffling on socialism. And I think this is a primary reason for this, is that they're refusing to look to God's law. Instead, they're looking to a vague, ambiguous, natural law that can be whatever you want it to be, it's a grab bag of ethics, and it it's completely de- 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 you know different depending on who you ask, mm-hmm. and, I don't, and I think that just leads to moral subjectivism. Yeah, and a couple final thoughts for me anyway. That's good stuff. I think you're you're dead on. One thing that was telling was Gordon uh, T. David Gordon made a, this comment about having opinions about statecraft and you know the covenantal obligation of the state isn't all that important. Then he makes this interesting comment. You, I'm sure you caught it. He said, well, maybe pastoring in D.C. may be more important for you. And Dever says, well, or less. Or less, right. And I, my jaw dropped the first time I heard him say that. Or less. Man, wow, is that telling. You know, I wasn't going to mention this. <laughs> <laughs> I spent several hours at Dever's church one time a couple years ago. And I had pamphlets talking about the fight against abortion. And we didn't come with big graphic signs. We actually didn't come with signs at all. Uh, many of us went in and we just spoke to people. Uh, many of us were just visitors that day. And I spoke to one of their elders uh, who was also, um, I believe, I can't remember his name right now, but I spoke to one of their elders. And we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the moral moral responsibility of the church to combat something like abortion. And it was like pulling teeth, trying to get that one thing, hmm. that one thing. So honestly, it's not that surprising that there's this, this what's the word? Hmm. This admission of defeat, yeah, this that's white good. flag mentality. We surrender. Even on things like slavery. It's because I've witnessed yeah. the same thing on abortion and, with the same people. And they had the audacity to say, well, the church shouldn't act like a 12 foot sailboat. Lehman said, well, she acts like it sometimes. And I'm thinking, well, we, you guys don't think it's important to have a theology of the state. Yeah. You literally just said that a minute ago. It's not that important. Oh, it's less important. We're in DC, so we should care even less about a theology of the state. And I just think, wow, it's just. Pietism, surrender, all of it. And when this is a leading voice in the Reformed world, we wonder why our politics is the way it is. (laughs) When we have somebody like Donald Trump as our Republican, 
<laughs> and Joe Biden as his competitor. Yeah. Like we wonder why this is where we're at. Yeah. And it's the fruit. It's the fruit of pietism. It's the yeah. fruit of not having a theology of the state. It's yeah. a, you know what else it's the fruit of? For crying out loud, it's the fruit of constantly strawmanning and attacking theonomy yeah. and framing it in the worst light, not even representing our position. Sure. All, all of it. And then not having a theology of the state. It just becomes this train wreck. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. So it's Le- very sad. Lehman Dever, have one of us on. We'll talk about it. Yeah. I, I know to. Lehman went on to cross politic. We're happy to have you. And um, uh, we'd obviously be happy to be guests on yours, but we don't think that this is a very fair take. And we think there's some major issues with this. Yes, indeed. Major issues. Yep. All right. Well, that's it for us on this episode, Crossing Crown Radio. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for watching, listening, wherever you find us. Remember, you can find us on your favorite podcast platforms, and we would appreciate you considering our uh, supporting us monthly. If you want to, um, in your prayers, certainly pray for us. And certainly, if you um, would like to partner, we would have you, and we would appreciate that very much. So that's it for us. Grace and peace to you all. Until next time. God bless.